My govanen melunin, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Speak, Friend, and Enter Deep Lore. This is where I take the dense, mythical stories of the Silmarillion and do my darndest to make them accessible to nerds and non-nerds alike. I'm Leah, your embarrassingly nerdy older sister. Previously, we've talked about the Aina Lindale, where Arda was created, and the Valaquenta, where we learned about the specifics of the Pantheon of Valar in Tolkien's Legendarium. Today, we're going to jump into the Quenta Silmarillion, or the history of the Silmarils. Before we really get going, I want to explain what the Silmarillion is. Some readers expect a cohesive narrative and then are disappointed when that's not what they get. The Silmarillion is Tolkien's son Christopher's best attempt at creating a coherent picture of the elder days of Arda from his father's scattered notes. So one chapter might be a really high-level view of a thousand years worth of events in Valinor, and then another might be a detailed, nitty-gritty account of the entire lives of two specific people. I just want to manage your expectations that we're not working with a story narrative like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit here, more of a collection of legends. We're starting, appropriately, with Chapter 1 of The Beginning of Days. The Valar we talked about last time are going to feature heavily here, so I'm going to talk about them with Homeric epithets as often as I can without becoming too repetitive. This is to prevent you from having to take notes on who's who because that's the opposite of what this show is about. So Varda will be Varda Queen of the Stars, Yavanna will be Yavanna Giver of Fruits, and so on. My hope is that this will jog your memory and provide some context for who these characters are and what they're about so you can stay engaged in the story. So, we're still in the beginning of the world's existence, so a lot of things that we take for granted don't exist yet. Things like the sun and stars and any source of light except Melkor's fires. Then, Tolkast the Strong comes running into the mix, laughing all the while, and Melkor is terrified of him, so he books it out of the world. And he hates Tolkast forever for putting a wrench in his world domination plans. After his retreat, there is peace for a long time in Arda. Yavanna, giver of fruits, plants a ton of seeds she has devised and makes a request of her husband, Aule the Craftsman. He makes her two huge, mighty lamps to light the world. Varda, queen of the stars, fills these lamps with light, and Manwe, the king of the Valar, sanctifies them and sets them on enormously high pillars taller than any mountain in the world. The lamps are called Iluin and Ormal, and they light the entire world in an unchanging light. Soon, Yavanna's seeds sprout and grow into mosses and ferns and trees whose crowns reach the clouds, and beasts come out of nowhere to live in the plains and the rivers and the woods. Everything is looking pretty spiffy, so Manwe calls for a party on the Isle of Almarin in the very center of Middle-earth, and all the Valar and Maiar gather. This is called the Feast of the Spring of Arda, and Tolkas the Strong marries Nessa the Dancer. Now that Tolkas is sleepy from his bang and reception, Melkor sees his opportunity. He's more pissed than ever that the earth has the audacity to be beautiful in its spring, so he sneaks over the walls of the night with his host and takes refuge in the far north of Middle-earth, and none of the Valar notice this. Melkor starts carving a huge stronghold deep underground where the light of the lamps barely reaches. The fortress is called Utumno, which is Quenya for deep or profound. It is also called Udun in Sindarin, which you'll recognize from Gandalf trash-talking Durin's Bane, the Balrog in Moria, who he calls Flame of Udun. It is an evil spirit of fire who comes from the stronghold of Udun. 
Melkor's evil and hatred seeps out from Utumno and into Middle-earth, and this is the origin of all kinds of nasty things in the world, rot and slime and fens and flies. When the forests become perilous and beasts become violent, the Valar realize that Melkor is back in the mix and go searching for him. But Melkor in this time is mighty, so he strikes a blow before the Valar can properly prepare. He knocks down the enormous pillars and breaks the lamps. When these pillars fall onto Middle-earth, they have a huge domino effect and cause earthquakes and tsunamis all over Arda. And the shape of Arda, and the symmetry of its waters and its lands was marred in that time, so that the first designs of the Valar were never after restored. Melkor escapes, but he is terrified, because he can hear Manwë, the king of the Valar, shouting like a great wind, and the mighty footfalls of Tolkas the Strong cause the earth to tremble. Melkor hides in Utumno, and the Valar mostly give up the search because it takes all of their combined strength to stop all the natural disasters and to save what they can of what remains of Middle-earth. The Isle of Almaren is totally destroyed, so the Valar all leave Middle-earth and move to a different continent called Amman, which is the westmost part of Arda where Valinor is. They fortify Amman by raising the Pelori, the highest mountains in the world. One of these is Tanaquetil, the tallest of the tallest mountains, where, as we've previously mentioned, Manwë, the king of the Valar, sets his throne. Behind the Pelori, the Valar establish their domain in Valinor. Here, the Valar guard all the fair and beautiful things that were saved from ruin in Middle-earth and continue to make even fairer things, and Valinor becomes even more beautiful than Middle-earth had been in the spring of Arda. And it was blessed, for the Deathless dwelt there, and there naught faded nor withered, neither was there any stain upon flower or leaf in that land, nor any corruption or sickness in anything that lived, for the very stones and waters were hallowed. So the Valar established their city, called Valmar of Many Bells. This next part is simply vital to the whole Silmarillion, and really the whole Legendarium, so rather than pervert it with my base slang, I'm just going to read it. Before Valmar's western gate there was a green mound, and Yavanna hallowed it, and she sat there long upon the green grass and sang a song of power, in which was set all her thought of things that grow in the earth. But Nienna thought in silence, and watered the mold with tears. In that time, the Valar were gathered together to hear the song of Yavanna, and they sat silent, and Yavanna Kementari sang before them, and they watched. And as they watched, upon the mound there came forth two slender shoots, and silence was all over the world in that hour, nor was there any other sound save the chanting of Yavanna. Under her song the saplings grew, and became fair and tall, and came to flower, and thus there awoke in the world the two trees of Valinor. Of all things which Yavanna made, they have most renown, and about their fate all the tales of the elder days are woven. The one had leaves of dark green that beneath were as shining silver, and from each of his countless flowers a dew of silver light was ever falling, and the earth beneath was dappled with the shadows of his fluttering leaves. The other bore leaves of a young green like the new-opened beech, their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground, and from the blossom of that tree there came forth warmth and a great light. Telperion the one was called, but Laurelin the other was. So, Yavanna and Nienna have a sick collab on these two beautiful trees. 
Yavanna fills them with her love of growing things, and Nienna, whose domain is pity and empathy and turning sorrow into wisdom, waters Yavanna's seedlings. One tree, Telperion, is referred to as male, and the other, Laurelin, as female. Because Tolkien was super Catholic, so even trees have to have binary genders and be straight and married. The trees glow with a divine inner light, and they wax and wane at opposite intervals, so twice a day they shine together, and this mingled light is beautiful beyond description. When Telperion first blooms and shines, it's referred to as the white glimmer of a silver dawn, and his majesty is so profound that this is the point when the Valar start counting time. So we are now in what's called the Years of the Trees, sometimes shortened as YT. The light that spills from the trees endures, and even the dew and rain that fall from them shines. Varda, Queen of the Stars, keeps this water in great vats as wells of water and light. Middle-earth is in a twilight, basically just waiting for elves to happen, and Melkor continues pacing his stronghold in Utumno, being generally menacing, and occasionally wandering out to be evil in the world at large. And in the darkness Melkor dwelt, and still often walked abroad, in many shapes of power and fear, and he wielded cold and fire, from the tops of the mountains to the deep furnaces that are beneath them, and whatsoever was cruel or violent or deadly in those days is laid to his charge. Meanwhile, Aule the craftsman is hard at work, making and building and crafting all the beautiful things in Valinor. He wrought there many beautiful and shapely works, both openly and in secret. All the knowledge of things that are in the earth and ripe for the mining, and all the knowledge of how to make everything, comes from Aule. Aule is called the Friend of the Noldor, and the Noldor are one of the noblest clans of elves, their ranks including people like Feanor, Galadriel, Gilgalad, Celebrimbor, and many more. The Noldor are distinct among elves for being highly skilled at crafting with metal and gems, so Aule is their number one Valapal. During all this time, some Valar keep an eye on everything going on in Middle-earth. Manwe, king of the Valar, is sitting on his high throne watching over the world, although his bird scouts can't tell him everything because Melkor is too well hidden. Manwe is described as having no thought for his own honor and is not jealous of his power but rules all to peace. Manwe loves the Vanyar clan of elves best because they're awesome at poetry and Manwe loves poetry. The Vanyar are the highest and noblest of the elf clans, however, they don't ever leave Valinor like many other high elves, so they don't feature much in the stories we know. They're the blondes have more fun elves, so as a general rule, if there's a blonde elf in After Days in Middle-earth, they have some Vanyaran ancestry. Now we come to Olmo, and again the Silmarillion says of him only, but Olmo was alone. In the deep places, he gave thought to music great and terrible, and the echo of that music runs through all the veins of the world in sorrow and in joy. For if joyful is the fountain that rises in the sun, its springs are in the wells of sorrow unfathomed at the foundations of the earth. The Teleri learned much of Ulmo, and for this reason their music has both sadness and enchantment. Again, we have this concept that Olmo's sorrow and loneliness makes music that spreads throughout the waterways in the earth. And again, Tolkien makes a point to say that despite his loneliness, Olmo loves those who dwell in Middle-earth. To all who were lost in that darkness or wandered far from the light of the Valar, the ear of Olmo was ever open, nor has he ever forsaken Middle-earth. 
Yavanna, Queen of the Earth, would occasionally return to Middle-earth to heal the scars that Melkor had left on the world. She repeatedly reminded the Valar that war with Melkor was coming, and they should face it before the children of Iluvatar awoke and could be hurt. Those are all the events of the beginning of days, and now the chapter turns to explaining the differences between elves and men, and what the gift of men is. While the Valar are incredibly powerful, they don't dare change anything about the creation of elves and men, because that part of the Aina the third theme of music that Iluvatar sang alone, was not of their making and thus not of their understanding. For which reason the Valar are to these kindreds rather than their elders, and their chieftains rather than their masters. The Valar are the older siblings, but they aren't necessarily considered the betters of elves and men. The Ainur mostly interact with elves rather than men because Iluvatar made the elves more similar to them, whereas to men he gave an unfathomable gift. This part of the Silmarillion is very beautiful and speaks to the human condition, so I'll read it. For it is said that after the departure of the Valar there was silence, and for an age Iluvatar sat alone in thought. Then he spoke and said, Behold, I love the earth, which shall be a mansion for the Quendi and the Atani, that is, the elves and men, but the Quendi shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures, and they shall have and shall conceive and bring forth more beauty than all my children, and they shall have the greater bliss in this world. But to the Atani I will give a new gift. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world, and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation everything should be in form and deed completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. So, Iluvatar makes elves lovely and skilled and happy. He makes men ambitious and impossible to satisfy, so that they are always striving for something more. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive, and are not bound to it, and depart soon whither the elves know not. Whereas the elves remain until the end of days, and their love of the earth and all the world is more single and more poignant therefore, and as the years lengthen, ever more sorrowful. Elves are bound to Arda, and can never leave it, and are burdened with the many sorrows that life holds. They can be slain or die from grief, but their souls depart to the halls of Mandos, master of the dead in Valinor, who rehabilitates them, and they can then return to life. However, men die for keeps, and elves, and even eventually the Valar, envy that men can be released from the burden of sorrow in a long life. Only Iluvatar knows what happens to men when they die, and this is referred to as the gift of men. That's going to be it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in to Speak, Friend, and Enter. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Those reviews really help people find the show. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss on the show, please email us at speakfriendpod at gmail.com. You can check out the show's Twitter at speakfriendpod for official pod stuff and only occasionally ridiculous visual aids, and my personal Twitter is at askistwin, that's I-S-T-W-E-N. We'll have a regular episode up next week, and after that we'll discuss the next chapter of the Silmarillion of Aule and Yavanna. We'll learn more about those two Valar and about the creation of the race of dwarves. Until next time, Muhu Turgizu Turguskin. May your beard continue to grow.